Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. Welcome back to Karen Commons. Today, I'm your host, Nate Wombold, Vice President for Alumni and Community Affairs here at Karen. We were really pleased to have Bob LaRocca in the studio with us recently. And as I predicted, once we got going on the subject of philosophy, we covered a huge amount of ground. We split this episode into two separate podcasts, so we are pleased to bring you the second portion of our conversation today. And I hope that you enjoy the content, which ends in some very practical information, as well as an opportunity to get some free materials. Do you have a favorite philosopher, Bob? (laughs) And I'm wondering, is that a legitimate question? Oh, absolutely. It's it's absolutely legitimate. Oh, okay. And who would that be? It's absolutely legitimate because... I don't feel so bad introducing Philosophy shouldn't be distinguished by names or schools, but it is. But in the end, a good philosopher, someone who's thinking more principally, is going to look beyond that name and understand that that person has has made an ascent that is peculiar or particular and maybe has a different starting point or definitely has a different ending point who has discovered uh, what they think is their first principle from which all else they explain. It's a first principle is that which explains everything but is itself not explained, it just is. And so one way philosophy is distinguished is just by different first principles. So let's say you let's say you believe that All that exists are particles that have been expelled within space-time, expulsed out, and flying through space have randomly converged to create uh, create complex structures that surround us, something like a Big Bang Theory. You would then have to explain everything with that theory, with just particles uniting together to create complex structures. And philosophers have tried to do this. It's called atomism. It's still alive today. Uh, it's the basic supposition behind particle physics, which is the you know, predominant form of physics. And you're going to have to not only explain material bodies, inert bodies, but living bodies, right? That's even a challenge today. Like, how do you get from particles to planets to ecosystems? Then ecosystems to consciousness, consciousness to maybe morality and physics, even the science they are doing themselves would then have to be explained by just particles. And those are your principles. So uh, that would be one tradition in philosophy that reduces everything to matter. And so there's names attached to that kind of philosophy. And so if you were interested in that kind of philosophy, you'd maybe say that I'm a Democritean. Or you'd maybe uh, name some more modern uh, physicist that you think has uh, the most sophisticated and explanatory particle theory. And that would be your philosophy. And so you'd give names, but really right behind the name should be a theory, and behind those theories would be the absolute principles that they think explain reality. So it's not a bad question. It's just like the names are kind of sandwiched. Or there may be, I should say, the name is the entry point. And if that was it, if you're just, it's kind of like the superficiality of name dropping. Right. Yes. It's not superficial if you know what's behind those right. names, right? That's and that's, the, I think, what I was getting at. They're almost, on the surface, does seem a superficiality. Yeah. It's just would be like, oh, my favorite philosopher right. is. 
And, you know, if you really want to impress your friends at parties, you just like bring up philosophy, you know, you see it all the time (laughs) in like sitcoms and stuff (laughs) like that, where, um, oh, well, Camus said, you know, uh, yeah, you hear that all the time. But that's legitimate if that person has actually read Camus, assents to his basic principles, and then would also back it up with argument that they should probably know the common objections against their uh, their viewpoint and are able to judge between alternatives. So when you ask, what is my favorite philosopher? I guess I would, <laughs> let me give you the long answer, is I really appreciate the classical philosophical tradition that really begins with Plato. Plato's philosophy, as I pre- presented my class here at Cairn, is the real revolutionary. He was dealing with those atomists back in the ancient uh, in the ancient Greek world, those who would try to reduce all phenomenon and all reality back down to particles. And it was Socrates really, I guess, before Plato, who didn't really come up with a theory, but came up with the right questions. You know, I always imagine him walking around barefoot in Athens, talking to materialists who believe that all that exists is just atoms in empty space. And he would ask people, well, do you believe in justice? And they're like, yes, you know, or they might be acting or politicking on the notion of justice. And Socrates would ask him, okay, tell me about the atomic structure of justice, which of course there isn't any. And if it just becomes a word, not reality, and if it's a word, not reality, then it's somebody's word, somebody's concept, and it's just mostly going to be an instrument of power. And Socrates just knew there had to be something more. And I, and I appreciate the Platonic tradition that says, yes, there has to be something more. And that more can't be material. If justice exists, it can't be a particular amongst particulars. It must be a universal, something that qualifies many instances. But a universal itself, if not particular, can't be material, therefore must be abstract and immaterial. There must be abstract and immaterial beings, principles, that if I'm going to explain reality, I need to transcend the world of sight and matter. Now, that trajectory sent him towards, well, justice is something perfect and good, but there's other kinds of perfect and good. So there must be something even beyond justice to, you know, skip some steps. That is the perfect and good containing all good within him, within itself. And this is like the form of the good, which is something like Plato's God, a principle of all perfection. And from it, all perfection is caused and or bees, which begins to sound something like the Christian God that we appreciate. We would almost say the same thing. Our Christian God contains all perfections in himself and is a sufficient reason for the perfection of all else as he's its creator. Plato would leave out the whole creator part. His his form of the good is not a person, but he's kind of on the way, right? He made a big splash. And a lot of um, Christian early Christian philosophers and apologists were kind of riding the wave of that splash, saying that, like, yeah, like I said, the God Yahweh of Scripture is very much like the cause of all existence that you get amongst the Platonists. Augustine had this insight as well. So I appreciate that Platonic tradition. Now, beginning back in the fourth century BC, in my opinion, that platonic tradition that was begun there reaches its zenith in the Middle Ages, where now you have a synthesis between Greek philosophy and Christian theology. And uh, Thomas Aquinas is taking Plato's form of the good and saying that this absolute principle of all that is, is actually is itself, being itself, he who is, Yahweh revealed to Moses of old, who's also the philosophical principle of all existence. And he is absolute, subsisting, cause, and that is the explanation for all else, all other reality. 
this uh, absolute cause has all the perfections of their beings, particularly intellectual beings, and therefore it has intellect and will. And the absolute principle of all existence is God's will to create. That to me is, pro is the most explanatory philosophy that I've ever encountered. But I don't think just Aquinas invented it. I think he's bringing an ancient tradition in light of Christian revelation to its most powerful and clear expression. So I guess I appreciate there's a lot of steps in between. So if I just named Aquinas, I would almost just, you know, you got to show your work kind of like in the sure. middle school yeah. math class. Yeah, that's the backstory. And so there's a whole yeah. backstory in between, you know, that's um, about 1700 years between Plato and Aquinas. And so it is filled with um, philosophical speculation, but kind of plodding along the way. And even since uh, Aquinas, uh, uh, many... He's oftentimes called the common doctor in the Christian church, kind of like Augustine would be. And Augustine's a very important name along the way. But for myself as a student of philosophy, I find myself modifying Aquinas' viewpoints, but not changing them substantially, at least as I encounter them. So that's where I am philosophically. But that's just it, is that there will be friends of mine, especially, you know, that are very skeptical of the medieval project. And their skepticism could be justified, but if I'm going to call myself a student of philosophy, I have to accept their skepticism, welcome it, and hopefully be able to gently, winsomely, but convincingly answer it. And so that's the, I don't think that Christians can just say that through revelation, we have transcended the history of thought. We're in it. And so, yeah, that is a matter of choosing names. It's okay to have a favorite philosopher. But then that's where the dialogue begins. Right. <laughs> that's where, yeah, that's where the, that's, that's where that communal aspect, um, with all of the, um, virtues that are attached to it, virtues, both natural, like wisdom and prudence, but also, uh, Christian virtues like love, you know, love for your brother as, you know, in, in, in the context of that, uh, that discussion. I like that you mentioned the kind of the party example, dropping Camus' name, <laughs> which there's been so much satire and 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 just uh, kind of memeing and mockery about that. And so, um, I I wonder if what are the that you perceive? What are kind of the stereotypes of the philosopher type that exist out there? Do they have any any foundation in terms of oh or, yeah. and the stereotype, but also maybe. Some of the criticisms, you know, I, I was kind of jokingly saying earlier, you know, the kind of asking, answering a question with a question and and kind of agitate, you know, do you want a yeah. cup of coffee? And, you know, well, what is coffee? You know, like, what do you just want to drink a cup of coffee? That kind yeah. of thing. So what of these have any foundation in reality and are any of them deserved, would you say? I think they're absolutely deserved. I mean, the first philosopher, typically, if you read a, a history of Western philosophy, the first philosopher you'll run into is Thales. Thales is around 600 BC and uh, famous in the ancient world. Thales was a strong, like back, back in that time, there wasn't much of a distinction between philosophy and cosmology and science. And so Thales was also an astronomer and a famous story is that Thales fell into a well while walking around looking at the stars. That sums up the personage of the philosopher pretty well. And that is just not practically minded. Socrates, more or less a, you know, might be called the bum today. I don't think he had uh, much tradable skills. Um, he was more or less living unemployed, walking around, asking people tough questions. So there is definitely a trope. It's not unlike our Lord in some ways, though, right? Is that he was also, he had something to say. He had questions to ask. 
And there is a, this is a more late, late 20th, early 20th century trope, but it's something true. There's something of a search for um, authenticity, something where you are trying to get beyond the semblances to the real, to the real. And so it's not, I don't think the philosopher is going to say, you know, when you ask him if he wants a cup, if you want a cup of coffee, they're not going to ask, they're not, they shouldn't say it because it'd be a superficial and probably uh, directionless question like, what is coffee? But like I brought up that notion of propriety earlier and you hear this all the time, especially with like parents like, well, you shouldn't do that because it's inappropriate. Where I, I don't, I don't like to speak that way where I try to say like, you shouldn't do that maybe because it's wrong. Or even better, it's unbecoming of your humanity. Right? Something like that. Something like <laughs> Which that. gets an immediate response. Right. right. But <laughs> in that case, like inappropriate is just really highly relativized, right? Maybe we need to stand on something a little bit more solid than propriety. And so that's, I think, where the philosophy and I, my friends joke around that I never turn it off. Like I, I can't. Like I, I am constantly trying to you know, drive the conversation that way, more or less because there's an intolerance of presumption. And that is philosophical. That you'll never, you'll never get to the end of that. That's good. And you're being authentic too. Yeah, there's something where um, who you are. You are trying to egg on your friends and family to because you. I think it's good for us to actually, especially as Christians, right? Is that as Christians, you're trying to part of discipleship is just being deeper. And for us, that depth is spiritual, not just in terms of explanation, but you should be reducing or at least connecting your behavior, your words to some higher mission. And so that you can see how the tracks are different between the philosopher and the life of Christian discipleship. And I'm not going to say even philosophy is absolutely necessary for the purposes of Christian discipleship. You can be a Christian disciple and never be a metaphysician. It's, it's possible but it's very almost appropriate or becoming of you to do so because you're still kind of ask you're still asking those questions uh, with regards to what does this mean? What is the purpose of all of this? Um, and like think of what we try to do as Christians. Um, the first parts of our day or throughout our day is like reorient ourselves towards things ultimate. It's really what the philosopher is after too. <laughs> excellent, excellent point. I mean, we certainly could use more depth among yeah. other things. Yeah. And I mean, it's oftentimes like I, we've been talking about theology as an entry into philosophy. Science is also an entry into philosophy. Um, you know, Aristotle, for instance, uh, was a scientist almost first of all. He, his dad was a doctor in the court of Philip, uh, the father of Alexander the Great. And so he has that kind of medical. My son has actually the same way. I, I think my son is more of a scientist than he's a philosopher just because he has a mind for like mechanics. He likes reading anatomy books, stuff like that. But Aristotle started his philosophy. I joke around this in classes that he was, you know, sailing around the G and collecting lizards because he was into like zoology. But his question was like, well, why are these both lizards? Why is it that I use the same name for two different entities? What is it that causes a thing to be a thing? And so that's a scientific question, right? If you're a scientist that studies whales, you would have to presume that there's something that causes a whale to be a whale and a bear to be a bear. And that's why I'm not studying that bear over there. If that's just merely convention, then that's just it. But if there's something real out there that actually gives your discipline an object, what is that? So you can enter, in, you can enter into philosophy from a theological vantage point, a scientific vantage point. One that I encourage friends, and this is oftentimes how it comes up, is also politics. Think of how like politically charged <laughs> the last... I mean, maybe 
it seems like the last five years have been more politically charged than usual, but who knows? Maybe I could be wrong. But we do live in a politically charged society, and you can just step back and take inventory of your political opinions. And we all have them, and that's fine. But ask, why is it that I think the state should be such? What is the purpose of government? Behind the purpose of government, what is the purpose of humanity? Behind the purpose of humanity, what is the purpose of the cosmos? Where is this all going? And why is there a good form of human society versus a bad form of human society? And it's interesting. I've, I've asked that to like uh, ardent Christian disciples. But when I start asking that question, uh, sometimes my Christian friends will reduce the human good to something like pleasure. And they never really realized it. They never realized that maybe their politics is a bit disjointed from their otherwise Christian conviction, where their politics, well, we just want to live happy you know, prosperous, lot, prosperous lives, and our Christianity is looking towards something else. And so you can see how easily there would be maybe a gulf between their political opinion and their otherwise Christian, Christian uh, convictions. Maybe thinking a little bit more deeply about the human good abstractly and philosophically can actually bring those two together with a, a deeper form of coherence. <laughs> um, and that's everywhere. That's, that's, that's something where you can even enter into, especially like ethical issues that way. Yeah, going back to what you said earlier, if if asking the why questions is a huge part of philosophy or in some ways very essential. And on the curiosity front, it would seem to me that so many disciplines that that young people, for instance, find terribly boring yeah. could be tremendously enhanced by simply asking these why questions. Absolutely. And the, uh, the igniting of curiosity, I mean, one of the most dreaded and common questions for the math teacher, we all know is why do we need to know this right so that's a perfect example of your mm -hmm. son asking so why do we need to know this and so we kind of put that aside it's like we got to get to the lesson today uh, yeah polynomials or what have you because the state said so right right <laughs> yeah. because the test is coming up right. you know and, and that's it's kind it. of the pain but i wonder if um you know i i think maybe we had talked about this but um, in my own experience, as I as I began to encounter some of those disciplines that I did not enjoy that much growing yeah. up, i.e. math and science, but from a more philosophical angle, suddenly they became really interesting mm -hmm. because they were about the larger questions of life and the connection and the uh, the integration of all these things. And so it seems to me that's another great place where people should employ philosophical thought because perhaps, and, and maybe some people who are educators, I mean, you know what I'm talking about if you're listening to this and you're an educator, but you may be at your wit's end with some of these things, but maybe pausing at some point to say, we're going to just today talk about why we're doing what we're doing and yeah. allow for that kind of dialogue. And, and, and believe me, I know, depending on the, on the audience, you may not be able to do that. But if you can get closer to that, not only might the students have more of a avenue into the subject, but you as the teacher may become a little bit more free to roam so on some I, of these subjects. That was the way I was going. I was a history major in college. And I began to, because I guess I had this philosophical bent from my theological studies, I began asking like, well, what, why study history? Which is something that my major asked, you know, we were asking that question. We were encouraged to ask that question. But, you know, what, what is the common answer? Why study history? Do, do you know? This is what everyone always says. So, so we don't make the same mistakes. Right. right? It's very practically oriented, yeah. right? Yeah. It's that we study be history. better today. We study history so that we can do things better, right? Or we can be warned against doing things worse. But I guess because of my philosophical bent, because the text that I was reading, I began to see like maybe we study history so that we can know humanity better. 
we can know what it is to be human. In that way, history is a discipline that serves a higher discipline of philosophy in that there's a way in which we can draw out examples and commonalities and from a wider scope of time where we can know what it is to be human. That's a very different answer, but that's a philosophical debate. What To, to what are our disciplines ordered? Um, are they ordered towards practice or are they ordered towards first principles? In the Middle Ages, there's a famous uh, theologian um, in the 13th century named Bonaventure, and he wrote a treatise on how all the arts and sciences are reduced to theology. Their purpose, the purpose in studying, is to make you a better theologian. And there's a point to that that we can even see as Christians, is that these other disciplines are ministerial aids to the theological project. Think of how uh, helpful it is to know something about Egyptian society for understanding Exodus, right, for instance. But he would ask, if the purpose of a thing is, is found within its highest, its highest operation, its highest activity, right? Like, so um, there's a difference between me contemplating uh, philosophy and me taking a shower, right? There's like the high, the higher, almost more human, uh, human endeavor. It predicates what I am, uh, constitutes what I am, displays what I am. Even for disciplines, if the highest, most profound product of history is to help us understand scripture together, then perhaps that is its purpose. That's his That's part of his argument. And so that's two very different ways of understanding the purpose of history. One, to like help us in practical ways, and the other, to help us in the contemplation and knowledge of God. And that's a philosophical debate. We can begin to enter into it. And you're going to carry with you your assumptions with regards to reality. Of course, if you don't believe in God and your highest being in the cosmos is humans, then all disciplines are for the sake of humans. And that's it. That's where it ends. And for that, that's what makes it practical. But if you believe that there's a higher being than us, then it would seem that all things would be reduced to that. That, knowledge that reminds me of something you've, you and I have talked about in the past, which is you've, you've pushed hard against the idea of studying philosophy because of the practical outcomes. For instance, as people are studying reason and logic and thinking deeply through these things, there are all kinds of benefits, I would think, not even the least of which is expanded attention span. Sure. I mean, the ability, because if you're sitting contemplating these things, you are fighting against the urge to be scrolling through social media on your phone or you're, Possibly, yeah. you, you know, you're, you're pulled away from that. And, yeah. and I think there are real benefits to that. But you have, in previous conversations, said, well, I, I don't want to get to the point where we're saying, let's study philosophy because of these things. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, I remember my first semester teaching here like five years ago when I was in a, like a adjunct faculty meeting. And I think the topic was like, how are you going to sell your class to your students? Right. Cause there is a bit of salesmanship in the classroom and that's perfectly fine. And obviously people's one, number one intuition is like, well, it's very useful, right? It's very applicable. Philosophy is just different because in some ways it actually draws you away from the applicable. It draws you away from the you know, how it works out and draws you up towards something that is higher than yourself, higher than take a, um, let's say there's a, a scientist that studies fish. That science is ordered towards knowing something lower than us, fish, a lower being. I'm working with a platonic hierarchy of nature, natures here, but I'm pretty sure everyone would be sympathetic that there's, a, especially in a Christian audience, that there's higher beings and lower beings. It's why we can eat fish and not people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. And so your science is ordered towards something lower than us. And when your science is lower, uh, ordered towards something lower than us, there's 
a way in which the beings you're studying are ordered towards us. And so there is a practical outcome to studying fish. It's for the sake of knowing fish, but it might be also for the sake of preserving the oceans, right? Preserving fishery, uh, uh, fish stock or what have you, uh, medicinal pur purposes, things like that, because we believe that the lower is ordered towards the higher. But philosophy studies things that are higher than us, not lower than us. And so the question there is not how these first principles are ordered towards humans, but it's how we are ordered towards them and their purposes. And so it's the same way, like if you believe that God is the first principle amongst all first principles, in investigating God, we're not asking what can God do for us or what is it, how God and his, uh, the knowledge of him can be reduced to our ends and our our practical purposes, but it actually gets reversed. The reason why philosophy is inherently contemplative and not practical is because the only way in which we can ever have any grasp of a higher being is through contemplation. That higher being doesn't need our service because it's higher than us. And so it's not a practical endeavor. And so in similar ways, I mean, Aristotle makes this argument, this is a second argument, is that he sees that this is also part of human nature. He points this out early on in the metaphysics, and he says that we share in the senses just like animals do, right? We have sense, we have, we have sense of sight, say, and say, uh, sense of hearing, and we use these for practical endeavors, right? That's, that's what makes blindness a uh, disability or being deaf a disability. And what's what makes it practically difficult to live your life uh, without those senses. But he points out, isn't it interesting that humans share within the practical sensor, sensory lives of animals, but we also do something different. Like, say you're riding on the highway and there's a scenic overlook coming up, right? And it's just maybe the golden hour and sunset. You might pull over and just look at it. It's actually gotten in the way of your, you're probably on your way somewhere. And it's now obstructing your practical end just to look at something. Now, let me ask you this. Let's say you have your dog in the trunk. Like, you know, in the trunk. A hatchback the or an SUV. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what, what are you my saying, dog. Bob? <laughs> that's where I keep my dog. Do you, Low get your, order. do you get your dog out to see the sunset? No. It doesn't care, right? Because that dog, the, the, his senses are just for sight. The best the dog might, I think my dog does in terms of taste, know that like the steak piece that falls on right, the floor is right. better than air food. But that's even probably survival instinct. That steak is maybe more appropriate food than whatever I feed them. But even otherwise, like there's what survival instinct is being expressed when we just look at a sunset for the sake of looking at a sunset? Take like music, right? Dogs, cats, humans all use our ears for the sake of practical endeavors. But I'm not, I'm not bringing, I'm not like showing my dog my favorite album. But I have shown my son and my daughter, right? Because I think that there's sounds that are worth hearing just because they're good, they're beautiful. Maybe there's something authentically true. There's some way in which it draws their soul towards, and think of how contemplative music is. Think about the, the inspiration you get from seeing something beautiful. It draws you up. It draws you to something higher. And I think Aristotle knew that, and he said it's, a, it's, it's integrally human. And so in some ways, and this is what I always say to philosophy students, you know, in uh, especially introduction to philosophy, is that it's not only that philosophy is not practical. It might even be an obstruction to the practical. It's going to get in the way. 
think about you in the job site, right? Your boss asks you to do something. Maybe one of the worst things you can do is ask them why. (laughs) (laughs) And especially be persistent (laughs) about it, right? Like you're in some ways, in some some, I mean, I, every, every employee knows that, right? You have to strategize your whys, right? You have to like hold, you have to build them up in a bank and then maybe cash them in every once in a while. In some ways, your practical day-to-day life is a negotiation of what is otherwise some pent-up philosophical energy. And then you find yourself like maybe unloading on your friend, you know, after work about all these things that you think because they're in there. Like this, this quest for the true maybe is like obstructed at work and now it needs to break free. That's something we feel and that's good. And if we had a more authentic community, there'd be more room for voicing that, right? Think of like how much more, when I say healthy, I should say authentically human, a workplace would be where it was run by logos, by reason. Anyone can voice anything and we're just going to try to find it out together. Now, of course, practically speaking, no, you have a deadline. Our our buyer wants it by this point, you know, or a supplier is going to deliver deliver a dent. Sorry, there's and not people much. People have feelings. Yeah, so and people have feelings. People have traffic. agendas. Yeah. People have pride, right? And everything kind of gets in the way and leaves some little little small corner, perhaps, where we can just like ask that kind of question. But it's those places that you find just constricting, right? Those are the place. Those are the contexts where you just feel like you need to, you know, at the end of the day, start throwing elbows, right, to like break out something within you. That's, I think, that philosophical urge. And I don't, I think that's human. It's not animal and is inherently impractical. <laughs> it's, yeah, I think that's helpful. It's your example of the sunset. It would almost be ascribing the practical uh, outcome, some of the practical outcomes of, of studying philosophy as a justification is like applying that to why you're stopping to, to look at the sunset. You know, well, explain yeah. to me why you're doing it. It, it almost is like, why are you even asking me that question? I'm stopping because there's something that inside of me. It's I'm being compelled because of what I'm seeing and this other thing. And so it, it almost is in a way kind of an absurd question. There is like the practicalities that might give you language. It might give you language to explain why you are so impractically minded at some points, right? Why you do things that just seem to not make sense with regards to just pure achievement or goal or uh, some agenda or goal. And that's, I think, that's part of the value, um, or it's it's fundamental to the value of the philosopher is that we're pointing to something higher than us. And when we point to something higher than us, it's not the lower orders that we believe will serve us. Because that's, that's the place that humans find themselves in this world of being a profoundly gifted being an orderer of the world, a governor of like even um, geologists now uh, refer to our age of the earth as the Anthropocene, you know, the place where humans now are affecting the very like the, the ecology of the, of, the, uh, of the world. And so our impact, our, our presence here is profound. We all know it. But is there anything higher than us that holds us accountable while we or is there anything that orders us? And that's that. That's that's the intuition behind philosophy is that there is, and we need to find it. Now, if theology stands above philosophy, and the benefit—I mean, your—I think your observation earlier that philosophy can help to make us as Christians 
think more deeply and yeah. ask deeper questions. And in that process, we that is influencing our response to theological questions and Absolutely. understanding. Does then the practicality, that practical outcome of philosophy seems to shoot up like a, a geyser up to theology, which if that is above philosophy, would almost, to me, seem like now the practical outcome actually is a reason for doing that because we're getting to something that that is higher than yeah, philosophy. Yeah, and that's what it, it's a complicated theory. But that is what God has added something to nature. He's added something to human nature that reorients our lives profoundly. And it's something that befits us by nature, but transcends us by nature. And the biblical word for it and the theology surrounding it is about covenant, that God has created a relationship with us. And a relationship is intellectual. It's about knowing, right? Take your relationship with your wife, right? You know millions and millions of facts about your wife. But that knowledge is not your marriage, right? That knowledge is not your relationship. It's fundamental. It's actually necessary. But it's not what really binds your relationship together. What binds your relationship together is love. And love is a stretching out of our intellects via our wills. And the human will is the seed of practicality. And it's the seed of service. And it's the seat of agenda. And by the relationship God has uh, made with us in covenant, especially the covenant break in, broken and then remade in, uh, now in Christ, our lives according to that covenant, covenant is our lives are practical. And they are uh, their end is in service, in this case, to God's kingdom. But that's where you have to distinguish between philosophy and theology. Philosophy is not ordered towards relating to God that way in itself. But, but I do agree with that 13th century theologian that all arts are reduced to theology in some way. And that philosophy, while we are rational intellectual beings, I believe we have a rational intellectual end. But God has enhanced that end to not only give us knowledge of himself through revelation, but a relationship with himself through covenant. And that you have this profound faculty that really is a biblical doctrine called the heart. I don't believe that philosophy actually satisfies it. I think at the end, when you get to the end of philosophical explanation, you can explain so much. You're given such a vision, such a coherence, right? Such an ability to uh, reason about your world. But in the end, I think at least the biblical witness that I, uh, is that God is, this is Augustine's point, is that God created us for himself and that in relationship with him which is something more profound and gets beyond just knowledge. And it is a practice. It is a way in which we are submitting our, our wills and looking to the ends of our actions in God through Christ. And it's through him that we know our labors and including philosophy is not in vain. So that's just, it's different. It's more profound. It's higher and speaks better to our end. That's what makes philosophy, a theology, so much of a higher science than, than philosophy. And whatever I say, I, 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 like, I, I make this point in apologetics, and by that point, a lot of the students have had me in philosophy, and they know how much I love it. So at that point, it has credibility, right? Like, no matter how much I love theology, the thing we're about to talk about in apologetics is so much more higher and profound, mm -hmm. and includes within it mysteries that cannot be investigated by the philosophers. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, we now accept as the 
basic principle for all of our lives, that God is three persons, that he's revealed himself in the fullness of time for our salvation, that we have reconciliation through God, through Christ. These are things that none of the philosophers would ever come to. But nevertheless, that is what I look to for my basic agenda and my end and my purpose, um, knowing that now my philosophical project has been duly relativized. Just a reminder what a privilege it is to be a Christian. Yeah, it's just that um, it's it's mysterious. Like I was talking with a friend on Monday night um, who is, uh, you know, like so many people deconstructing their faith. And, you know, I try to appeal to them on philosophical basis, uh, theological basis. But it, it is always a reminder of just what a supernatural gift faith is, where I'm trying to commend the faith, the faith that we once shared. Uh, and what is, you know, for me, it's the faith that's still alive within me. But I, I find that my, my philosophical reasonings just are impotent. All I have is my prayer and the hope that the Holy Spirit will use me in whatever way. But it is different. It is just, it is a, it's supernatural. Philosophy is natural. Our faith is something given to us by God and calls us to a higher purpose than we could ever achieve by our own faculties, much less the fac faculties affected by sin. Let's say someone's hearing this and, and they say, their interest is peaked. I hope it is. Okay. And they say, I want to learn more or, or I want to kind of get started on this, this quest. They, they want their own philosophical quest. What do you recommend people do in terms of reading? Uh, what, are, what are some practical steps sure. that they can take to begin the studying philosophy and, and thinking philosophically and, it, as you said, being a philosopher? I guess I just actually had a conversation with a student this morning about it and I'd hate to, I'm not shameless in, in vindicating, you know, my own job, but I really do believe that there is something about philosophy class. I know that's not open for everyone, but it's difficult for me to imagine getting into philosophy without instruction. So one of the most important ways to get into philosophy is to find a philosopher, somebody who has studied it already and seek guidance. Like I mentioned earlier, you can't just, you're, you're not supposed to do this on your own. Don't think that you're going to come home from work at five, eat dinner, and by seven o'clock, be at home in your like you know your study or your chair, and just going to read something and get, and like be able to drum up philosophy. You should find a somebody, possibly like in your community, your job, your church, who has been around the block a little bit, and begin conversations. Have them ask them if they are tr if they are truly a philosophy student. This will be you know, water in a desert, they will be thrilled. They will like, they will schedule times to get together with you. They will make time in their week for somebody who's interested in this. If they're not, then you should seek You're out. asking the wrong person. You're asking the wrong person. Right. You're asking somebody who's not probably adequately studying philosophy. So they're probably a bad guide in the first place. So that I guess would be the first thing is try to find somebody and um, I mean, these days in the internet, there's probably groups that you can find locally. And even if uh, even if you might be intimidated, well, I'm not sure what kind of philosophy that they are studying. I'm not. You'll you can still go there, even as a Christian, and learn something. Learn and ask them ask them a lot of questions. Again, if they are real philosophers, they will try to answer them. They should be able to try to explain them. The clarity of their thought will be uh, uh, demonstrating the clarity of their explanations. And so, yeah, first thing you should do is begin to develop a community. And the community is with instruction, uh, someone who's able to instruct you and guide you. 
it's almost impossible to uh, get into it otherwise. It's going to be extremely difficult just diving into philosophical texts um, on your own. Supplemental read. I mean, so that'd be number one. Right. Like, you know, that'd be, there's almost, there's distant seconds. Um, but a distant second is, um, especially if you have no background at all, the second best kind of instruction you'd get would be from secondary sources. Just diving into philosophical literature, you are going to be, it's kind of like, how do I get into mountaineering? Climb mountain. No, you should probably, you should be guided up that mountain or you should just, you should be, uh, start out with, uh, some rigorous, rigorous hikes or something like that. But yeah, so don't just dive into primary sources. Um, secondary source, one book that just came out is a history of Western philosophy by, uh, Stephen Evans. You can look up, look up that one. I was, they actually signed it at Karen for a class I taught and it was used as a textbook and I was, read it for the first time over this past summer and was actually really delighted. I think it came out in 2018. So it's pretty, a recent book by a Christian philosopher. I also like a guy named Samuel Stumpf. So it's Stump with an F at the end, mm -hmm. a German name. And uh, he writes a very um, rich but usable one-volume history of philosophy covering like 2,500 years. After that, after you read some secondary literature uh, and you might have to read it a number of times because it's philosophy, pick the philosopher that you found most convincing, that you think there's most promise and then begin to look at like the suggested readings with regards to what primary sources you should get into and begin from and begin from there. But again, on your own, it'll be slow going and and almost you'll need encouragement from other people. So I guess like again, the first thing is seek out a community. Bob, thanks for joining us and I already am sensing we have the opportunity to do a sequel podcast. So I hope that you will come back sometime for further conversation. I know there's plenty of other subjects that we will be able to delve into and you've already alluded to some of those today and I think people will find those really helpful. Well, in the meantime, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I have a feeling if you did, you'd also enjoy our new quarterly publication here at Cairn. It's called Triquetra. And in Triquetra, our people delve deeply into a variety of important subjects. And you can find out how to sign up for a free print subscription by going to cairn.edu slash Triquetra. You can see back issues there online, but this is a print publication. So if you sign up, you'll receive it in your mailbox four times a year. And I'm sure that, as I said, if you've enjoyed this kind of conversation, you are very likely to enjoy the content that you will read there. Make sure also you follow Karen's social media channels. We are everywhere so that when we post this podcast, you'll see the opportunity for how you can win a copy of one of the books that Bob recommended if you're interested in getting started in a study of philosophy. Make sure that you follow those pages and like them so that they show up in your feed and uh, you'll see instructions there for how you can be entered to win a free copy. Thanks for listening. What are your top five rock albums of all time? You're all a fan right. of rock, right? Yeah, no, I'm a, I like, I, I'm almost like a, my interest in rock and roll is almost historical. Like it, it, it takes on every other way in which I'm a nerd about everything in life. My top three are 
The Village Green Preservation Society by the Kinks from 1968. That has been my number one album for pretty much my entire life. Number two would be My uh, My Bloody Valentine's Loveless from ni- ni- yeah, 1991 because I'm a huge fan of Shoegaze. And probably three would be a live album from The Grateful Dead, Live Dead, which is uh, I think was recorded on February 28th, 1969 because I'm a pretty huge Grateful Dead fan. Those would be my three. 